Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. This is Dr. Habib, and I'm very, very excited about today's episode. We just finished recording with Brendan Vermeer. For Brendan is one of the coolest guys I think I've ever met. We had the opportunity to connect when we both spoke at uh, a microbiome labs and, and PLMI event in Denver in uh, September last year. And we hit it off with just this entire conversation that had everything to do with the modulation of microglial cells. And if you remember, microglial cells are the immune cell, the primary immune cell in the brain that's required for optimal brain function. And Brendan's entire business is built around the concept of microglial activation syndrome. And I I love the conversation that we just have finished having with him. Myself, JP, and Brendan really riffed, went deep into the science, and then pulled right back into a lot of the clinical tools, the best exercises, the best way to help to maintain and optimize the state of these microglial cells and how important it is to mental health, physical health, metabolic health, just an overall wonderful conversation with Brendan Vermeer. Uh, I hope you enjoy this one. We'll catch you at the end of it. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It's uh, Dr. Habib here with JP Erico, our co-host, and our wonderful guest, Brendan Vermeer. Thanks for joining us, Brendan. Thanks for having me, my friend. I'm excited to chat with you both and uh, talk about some cool science stuff. Absolutely. We're going we're gonna to really dig into the, the nerd science here a little bit. I think it's uh, something I'm very interested in, JP is very interested in, and something that you promote a lot on social and, and in your work. Um, why don't we get started with what brought you into the functional world to begin with, uh, a little bit about your journey. Yeah, no, I mean, certainly it could be like a super long sob story. I've gotten really good at sort of consolidating it because my background is nutrition and fitness. And so I come from the world of metabolic physiology and optimizing health and performance more through that, that metabolic lens, uh, you know, lifelong athlete and, and fitness buff and all that stuff. And so in the early stages of my career, I was like 18, 19, you know, 21 ish. Uh, I was actually really struggling with my mental health a lot. And, you know, certainly these days, like metabolic psychiatry is starting to kind of pick up momentum as as a thing, which is probably like three decades overdue, but nonetheless, here we are. And so I'm glad to see that because certainly if we're talking about root cause factors of mental neuropsychiatric neurodegenerative stuff, you know, that metabolic component is huge. But part of the point I want to make is, I had the metabolic health, you know, I I was very fit, very healthy, you know, my mental health struggles were not metabolic in in origin, right? And, you know, I went through my whole scary thing of being, you know, hospitalized after a a suicide attempt and, you know, going through a, a really toxic relationship that ended with her killing herself. Like there's this, you know, crazy, crazy backstory to all of it. But ultimately, it was trying to navigate my own mental health struggles and trying to quite literally save my my ex-fiance. That's what steered me into functional medicine because she really came down with this 
mysterious illness that nobody could figure out. And, and this isn't exaggerated at all, where she literally was wasting away. Her, her demeanor became way more volatile. She had a lot of like neurological symptoms going on, peripheral neuropathy, numbness, tingling, ice pick pain that was kind of moving throughout her body. So it was trying to, you know, do research to figure out what was going on with her because our conventional doctor had no solutions, although we did get turned on to MTHFR because they had run that marker. You know, we went to naturopathic, chiropractic, physical therapy, acupuncture, doing parasite cleanses, like nothing was helping. And so I started going down these rabbit holes, but ultimately it was the research I was doing to try to save her that then steered me into functional medicine. And while she's no longer with us, I'm here and now this has just taken over my life. So that's kind of the short of it. <laughs> Thank you for your vulnerability and sharing. I, I can't imagine what that was like going through, but um, you learned from it. You were able to gain some knowledge and, and hopefully help a lot of people in the future dealing with mental health challenges to not go down that same path, right? We can, we can't for sure. really, we can use what's in the past to, to try to benefit everybody in the future and the present. So uh, thank you for that work and for sharing that. Oh, no, thank you guys. I mean, that that's the goal, right? Paying it forward. There's a lot of, uh, you know, turning your pain into your purpose and your mission. There's, I always like to say that my work is my medicine. And I, I mean that pretty literally, like my, my work and my service in this realm is very therapeutic for me, you know, as I continue navigating my path. So it's a pleasure. Absolutely. It's how you heal. And, and I appreciate that. So let's, let's get into some of those mechanisms, some of those learnings that you've had over the last uh, couple of, or a few decades, I imagine. So let's, let's dig into it. Uh, you're, you're really focused on microglial activation mm -hmm. as a major driver of mental health conditions and other uh, brain-based challenges. We talk a lot about microglia, but why don't we do a little basic intro and then start talking about some of the, the more clinical findings that you've been able to help people overcome? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. You know, I, I think it's really interesting. We're in this age of information and, and so much research is coming out. It's, it's a rapidly evolving field. But I will start by boldly saying, like, it's impossible to really be like up to date on the research of neuropsychiatric conditions, neurodevelopmental or neurodegeneration, which that's on a spectrum and people don't get that. And the microglia are really what regulate that of whether we're talking about the fact that autism is now one in 36 American children, whether we're talking about, you know, uh, depression being the leading cause of morbidity worldwide, whether we're talking about Alzheimer's being the sixth or seventh leading cause of death for Americans or cerebrovascular disease, the microglia are at the heart of this. And so, you know, for a long time, we've kind of been taught and told and sold this narrative by pharma that, you know, mental illness is really the result of brain chemical imbalances. We don't know why it happens. There's a genetic factor. There's not really anything you can do about it. So you take the neuropsychiatric drug that balances the brain chemicals and you talk to somebody, right? And the monoamine theory, the monoamine theory of, of uh, mental health uh, and exactly. pharma. It's, it's not wrong, but it's just so limited. It's just such a tiny little piece of what's really going on. You know, the, we, we talk a lot on, on the podcast about the sort of the triangle of the autonomic nervous system, 
metabolism. So I'm really fascinated by the fact that like you jumped right in, like one minute in, you were talking about, you know, metabolic dysfunction really being a big driver. And then the innate immune system and the microglial cells are part of that innate immune system. And, and all three are really the core. They're the three stools that hold up, you know, the three legs of the stool that hold up everything in, in your body. So when one of them is dysfunctional, it affects everything else. So you know, to your point. Yeah, exactly. You know, the monoamine theory, it, it, at this point, it's outdated, right? It's, it's incomplete. It's outdated. It's, it's not wrong. But, you know, now as we're really seeing, it's like there's a lot of upstream physiological factors that are probably going to be going on before we, we see sort of this, you know, transmission dysregulation, right? And so the microglia, just defining those for the audience, obviously, of the innate white blood cell of the central nervous system, right? And they are nearly identical in structure and function to the peripheral macrophage or, or monocyte. In fact, they used to you know, think the microglia were macrophages that had migrated into the, the parenchyma of the central nervous system. And they're like, wait, these have totally different cellular origins. These are different cells, but very similar. And so I always like to refer to these microglia as both the architects and the, and the guardians of the central nervous system, because they, yes, you know, they are the sentinel immune cells. If there's an insult pathogen for an invader, whatever, they're tasked with fighting it off, clearing it up with, you know, the cleansing fire of inflammation and its oxidative mechanisms with inducible nitric oxide synthase and all that cool stuff. But there's also this like, extremely powerful sculpting and regenerative role that they play. So when we talk about like the neurodevelopment that happens in utero and obviously the first however many years of life, like it is the microglia sculpting and then maintaining the neural networks and ideally preventing the degeneration. And so the fact that we see neurodevelopmental disorders on the rise, mental health disorders on the rise, neurodegenerative, the microglia steal the show. Yeah. And, and, they actually also build mm -hmm. the vasculature. They, they build the long, uh, the connections, they promote oligodendrocytes uh, and the myelination of those, uh, those connections. So they're involved in white matter development. They control the astrocytes, which are the cells that literally sit on top of both the vasculature to maintain the blood brain mm -hmm. barrier and also the, uh, the synapses and control they're, they're basically almost like the muffler or the, or the volume control on synapses. They're, they're, they're incredibly important. And yet they, they listen to what the microglia have to say. I, you know, it's interesting that you say that the, in your mind, the microglia cells are really just like uh, macrophages. And then you said monocytes. And I, I always think of it sort of as an unfortunate um, artifact of history that circulating monocytes that migrate into tissue and differentiate into, into macrophages are called macrophages because the, the microglial cells in the central nervous system, they don't come from monocytes. As you said, they're, they're, they, that's not how they are derived. The microglial cells are there with you from the earliest stages of gestation. And we spent some time talking about that on neurodevelopment and ingestation you know, how that process happens. Um, and those same microglial cells, we're actually talking about the same exact cells are with you from the earliest stages of, of neurodevelopment in, in utero all the way through until your death. And actually, we've, we actually had uh, Dr. Maria F. Tremblay on and I've continued to dialogue with her and working with her. 
you know, eight hours after you're dead, those microglial cells are still roaming around in your brain trying to fix things. So they're, they're, they're just the most fascinating cell to me. I mean, they're just unbelievably important. And, and you're right. Yes, they are immune cells in their origin, but much the same way those same innate and tissue resident macrophages in your liver, in your kidneys, in your heart, your lungs, et cetera. Yes, they're capable of, of being your defenders and protectors, but you almost don't want them doing that. That's like the last thing that they should be doing. They should be maintaining and supporting and, and regenerating after damage the tissue because that's really the job. And when they do that, you're healthy. Um, so let's dig into how those microglial cells in the brain can get dysfunctional. Absolutely. And that becomes like, that's why microglial activation really became it, like, it's literally the focal point of everything about my career. It's, it's the focal point of like my branding and my business model and my methodology and the panel that I developed of like, well, what biomarkers do we use to qualify the likelihood of, of macro, you know, microglial activation and neuroinflammation. That's and brilliant. then it was, yeah, thank you. I, I, I will have to <laughs> nerd out about it a little bit because there's so much going on there. And then you look at all of the many root cause factors that can contribute to this dysregulation in, in the mor morphology of the microglial cells and the phenotype they're expressing. So it's, I think as we enter this conversation, you know, recognizing, because a lot of times you guys can appreciate this. A lot of times in our industry, you know, practitioners are kind of quick to blame the cells on being dysfunctional, right? Like the cells are misbehaving. And it's like the cells are not misbehaving. They are appropriately responding to the environment that they're floating around in and marinating in, right? So if we want, you know, whereas like big pharma, of course, they're spending tons of money in research. What drugs or therapeutics can we put in to modulate the activity of the microglial cells synthetically? So that way we don't have to deal with those pesky environmental lifestyle, you know, root cause factors, right? Let's just, you know, flip the switch and get them to do what we want them to do. But what we have to talk about from a functional perspective is, you know, what input signals are changing the milieu, the cytokine, chemokine, oxidative, nitrosative milieu that is then triggering, you know, the polarization of the microglia to this excess of the pro-inflammatory cytotoxic M1 phenotype as you're alluding to. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's definitely a wet wired system. You know, when you talk to neurologists, they are very concerned about, okay, what's one neuron saying to another? They understand astrocytes and they are willing to include them in the mix and the discussion, but it's very rare to find a neurologist who's actually really interested in talking about inflammation, talking about the effects of, and, and I, again, I'm going to come back to it because it's so important in, the, in, the, in the, the, the three legs of the stool, the role that metabolism plays. We know that as immune cells transition from that state that they're in normally which is that, that neurotrophic state in the brain, that, that tissue supportive maintenance role that they play. When they're in that role, oxidative phosphorylation is, is going strong. Their mitochondria are healthy. But when they shift into that inflamed state, damage starts to happen inside that, that, that immune cell itself. There's damage that's happening at the, at the mitochondrial level. They aren't producing energy in the same way. They shift over to a, 
uh, oxidative uh, or a, uh, a fermented state where they're relying on glycolysis. So you can actually see them start to malfunction themselves. They're also causing dysfunction externally. You have to slow that down. You have to bring it back to that, that healthy neurotrophic state quickly, because if it just stays there, those cells do become dysfunctional. How do you, what, what are some of the, the, the things that you look for? Because you said you have, you're, you're developing a panel to, to look for uh, the, the signs that those microglial cells are getting dysfunctional. Yeah. I mean, there's a disconnect between obviously like what scientists can measure in, you know, research laboratories versus what we can measure commercially, you know, through biomarkers. So I do think in time, you know, we will have more uh, clinical biomarkers commercially available that are more specific to, to microglia activation, but we already have so many, you know, for example, like good old fashioned classic C-reactive protein, you know, we see that microglia cells can actually produce C-reactive protein. We see that C-reactive protein can increase pericellular permeability of the blood-brain barrier. We see that CRP is associated with neuroinflammation, right? You know, while the traditional argument of CRP of like, oh, it's only made by the liver, interleukin-6, it's really just peripheral inflammation, and that's simply not true. You know, there's copious amounts of research that show otherwise, but then we can get even more specific with more advanced biomarkers. So, some of the ones that I've identified as being most pertinent for microglial cells, like yes, CRP, but I think more specifically myeloproxidase, neoterin, MMP9, uh, quinolinic acid, you know, looking at some of these markers reflective of, you know, glial activation, immune activation, inflammation in general. And then part of what I did, because I like to think I'm clever, is, you know, looking at some of these immune activation inflammatory markers. But ultimately, you know, to your point, JP, if there is enough, you know, I, I think of neuroinflammation as, as a spectrum. You don't have it or you don't have it. It's where is it? It's in constant flux. Every time you get a little stress or a little bug or some sort of insult, it's going to flare up. And to your point, well, yeah, right. it should resolve. It should calm down. But the majority of the population is so dysfunctional that they are kind of constantly in this excess leaning to that M1 pro-inflammatory phenotype. And so then what's going to happen if we have these microglial cells excessively, you know, spitting out inflammatory oxidative, you know, molecules all the time, at some point it's going to start damaging our neurons and our brain cells, right? So this is where neurofilament light chain has emerged as far and ahead, the single best biomarker that we can measure in the blood that is directly related to, to brain cell damage and neuron damage. So my strategy is looking at these markers in the blood reflective of all this and also looking at that neurofilament light chain because you can kind of get this picture of you could have somebody with lots of inflammation, but it's not yet to the point that's causing like neurodegeneration. Whereas like somebody that's like, let's say 80, 90 years old, and they've had right. Alzheimer's, Parkinson's for a decade, and it's just been going and going and going, they'll have the elevated inflammatory markers and extremely high levels of neurofilament light chain because their brain has been degenerating for a decade. So, You, you know, that's a, re that's a really interesting point because a, a lot of, and I, I'm so happy you brought up quinolinic acid because that 
we've talked on, on, on the podcast about the effect of inflammation on the production of key neurotransmitters. So going back to that monoamine theory, oh, you don't have enough serotonin. Oh, you don't have enough norepinephrine. So we have to give you these drugs that block the reuptake of those, uh, those neurotransmitters so you have enough. So those are the SSRIs and the SNRIs that are literally given out like, like Skittles to, you know, nowadays. But at the end of the day, the, the disruption of the production of those neurotransmitters really boils down to the presence of inflammatory cytokines, which signal to the immune system and to the cells that there's inflammation around the potential for a microbe. And so there's this shift in, in the, the, the biosynthetic pathways in the direction of creating more, uh, you know, more uh, free radicals, reactive oxygen species, et cetera. And, you know, that, that just, you know, that's part metabolic, that's part uh, inflammatory. It, it, at the end of the day, you were also talking about how we live our lives, driving um, ourselves into that inflamed, that permanently hyper-excitable state that leads to all those problems. And so the, the, this brings it around to a question that I, I have, and I, I don't know the answer, but maybe you have some insights that I'd love to hear. There are certain consequences of those dysfunctional pathways that lead to things like migraine headaches. They lead to uh, insomnia. They lead to depression. They lead to uh, brain fog. Some of those are associated with long-term neurodegenerative problems, but other ones are actually considered at this point to be almost signs that you're not going to have neurodegenerative problems. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. Migraine headaches, you know, if you talk to the top leading uh, migraine specialists, they'll say, oh, it's terrible that you're suffering with migraines, Mrs. Jones. But the good news is you're less likely to have Alzheimer's. Okay. Okay. I'm not sure I want to make that trade-off, but you know, okay. But at the same time, you're not getting enough sleep or depression or other things that are associated with the same inflammation, they are associated with a higher level of, of neurodegenerative disorders. Do you, and, and maybe we're just going to blue sky here, but um, do you have any thoughts on why it would be that some of the consequences of neuroinflammation would be protective against neurodegeneration while others seem to almost promote it? Do you have any, any, any thoughts? I mean, and maybe we're going to dive off a deep end into just speculation here, but do you have any thoughts? Um, yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I'm, I'm all for speculation and theory because that paves the way for what research needs to be done. And, you know, with that, for example, I remember um, when I was developing like a, I, I have a 40 hour course that's just on this one subject, right? And deep dive into the science and the biomarkers. And I specifically remember it was either uh, a paper more so looking at maybe like erythrocyte sedimentation rate or fibrinogen, one of the two. And what the paper was really arguing was, well, actually, like when we have, you know, this inflammation, it's neuroprotective, right? Because this is where, to your point, we have to kind of back up and it's like, you know, neuroinflammation is not bad, uh, you know, unto itself, right? You know, chronic dysregulated non-resolving neuroinflammation is, is really sure. the issue. Like if, if, if I get COVID for the fifth time tomorrow and then I have a fever, like I want that neuroinflammation and, and inducible nitric oxide synthase and microglial response to defend my brain from that COVID. And so, you know, we, we don't know all the answers. 
But it would be interesting to see some of that of ultimately the individuals that maybe they're having, you know, the migraines or, or even sort of anxiety, insomnia, brain fog, depression, some of these sort of like acute symptoms of a neuroinflammatory process. But if the neuroinflammation is able to get the job done and resolve, the microglial cells are able to, like one of the things I've seen through literature is, you know, obviously we've got like our quiescent microglial cells and then activated with, you know, the major phenotypes, M1, pro-inflammatory, M2, anti-inflammatory. And then there's like sub-phenotypes and that goes to just yeah, a different meta right. level. But it seems too like these microglial cells, they're dynamic enough. They can be a little bit M1 and a little bit M2. You know, they can be pleiotropic. They can, you know, maybe be pumping out some inflammatory mediators and some neurotrophic, neuroprotective mediators at the same time. So I kind of think of it as like that, you know, um, like somebody that's forging like a sword or something, they stick it in the fire to make it malleable and bang it into shape, then dip it in the cold water to sort of harden it, freeze it. I kind of picture that with how the microglial cells are modulating the synaptic connection. So I don't know. I mean, to your point with some of those symptoms, if they have a healthy, robust inflammatory response that resolves it, it could then be, you know, neuroprotective in the long run. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's probably right. Uh, you know, I, 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 I remember back when I was first studying migraine, how surprised I was that some of the hyperactivity, the hyper uh, excitability uh, phenomena like cortical spreading depressions, that the presence of TNF-alpha actually is protective against those things occurring. So it's just, you know, you never know whether the immune system's response is going to be damaging or helpful. Um, you want it to be helpful. And, and, and there's lots of really helpful things like sleep, for example, just getting to sleep. The process of getting to sleep actually requires microglial cells to, to express certain inflammatory markers. And so, and, and the pruning of the, of the network involves that, that microglial cells are so critically involved in that that process involves mimicking the inflammatory process of phagocytosis, you know, it's, it's trogocytosis. It's only nibbling away, but it still has to behave in a pro-inflammatory like way. So you're absolutely right. It's a very, it's a spectrum. So it, it's a, it's a very complicated subject that I'm sure 40 hours just touches the surface. Uh, I, I, I'm intrigued by your, your program. Thank you. And, and that's, that's why like something I preach a lot is you know, as practitioners, we have to make sure we're spending more time tracking physiology than chasing root causes, right? Because ultimately, you know, we can look at all these cool mechanisms, but we have to see what's the net effect of all these many moving pieces over the course of time, right? And so that's where, you know, I've been kind of doing this research with, with my panel that's called the Mental Map. Map stands for Microglial Activation Profile really sexy branding, better science, you know, but that's kind of the point of I've been, you know, looking at a lot of these markers and a lot of people for a long enough time. And it's really interesting to kind of see that moving picture over time. And you see things creeping up, creeping down, even at like a subclinical level, you know, so obviously somebody at like a neurodegenerative level. But one of the things too, you had comments on with like the quinolinic acid, you know, the to me, it doesn't make sense to try to like balance the brain chemicals, balance the neurotransmitters until, you know, the microglial activation is, is really addressed because a lot of these brain cells, you know, the neurons, the elect endocytes, the astrocytes, the, the glial cells, 
they most of them express these two core intracellular biochemical enzymes, the IDO1 that generates the quinolinic acid, and then GTPCH1, which generates the neoterin or bioterin. And so what we do see, like a lot of times it's called like the tryptophan steel, which is cute. I don't know if it's fully accurate, but it's cute where kind of this idea of, okay, well, when activated, you know, the glial cells kind of gobble up the tryptophan, produce this noxious NMDA agonist of, of the quinolinic acid and everything. In neoterin, these two pathways run parallel. I mean, they're just biochemical pathways. But the neoterin, as that's going up, bioterin BH4, which is our major cofactor to produce the serotonin, the dopamine, the nitric oxide, all that gets dysregulated. So, you know, if we see elevated neoterin, whether that's cerebrospinal fluid, blood, urine, you can measure in any of the above, or like quinolinic acid, which is usually measured in the urine, if those are elevated, like that's the priority because we're not really going to be able to effectively, you know, improve the neurotransmission component until that's addressed, in, in my opinion. It, one of the things that we've talked about before is, you know, serotonin is, yes, it's a two-step process from, uh, from tryptophan to serotonin, but then there's another two-step process down to melatonin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most people think of melatonin as associated with sleep. It's generated in the pineal gland, but that's, that's the secreted melatonin. Every cell in your body, with the possible exception of red blood cells, makes serotonin and makes melatonin because melatonin is critical for, again, mitochondrial function. And uh, so I'm interested to, uh, to hear your thoughts on the role of melatonin and, again, coming back to how melatonin and inflammation and the lack of melatonin as a result impacts mitochondria and what does that do to overall metabolism in the central nervous system? Because, I, you know, again, those are, the, those are the legs of the stool. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty dynamic picture because, I mean, with like the quinolinic acid, neoterin, for example, I mean, if, if those pathways are dysregulating neuro, neurotransmitter synthesis, serotonin, melatonin synthesis, I mean, you know, the simple argument would, would be like, okay, we don't have enough serotonin to feel happy and we don't have enough melatonin to sleep. But there's also a lot of ways, I think, to kind of circumvent and sort of augment that because I do think, you know, supplemental melatonin or supplemental 5-HTP. So usually like when I'm working with a, a client in, in real time, kind of down in the trenches, you know, sort of this, I don't want to say microglial inhibition, but more modulation and qualming the immunological inflammatory response. But I do still think we can support, you know, those neurotransmitters directly with the precursors or with melatonin supplementation, because part of it, anything that we can do to change the milieu, to change the environment from this pro-inflammatory oxidized nitrosative and shift it to this more antioxidative, anti-inflammatory, I think that's really where a lot of the healing is going to happen. And that's where a lot, you know, the melatonin or glutathione or you know, there's so many things that we can do to try to shift that milieu. And then of course, you know, supplements and therapeutics aside, it's like, yeah, but the environmental input signals, the lifestyle input signals, right? Like, you know, we can give them all the supplements we want, but if they're diabetic, if they're, you know, homocysteine is at 20, if, you know, they're huffing a lot of air pollution, it's, it's just going to be like this uphill battle. So one of the, one of the things that I've I get concerned about, especially about the uh, the use of SSRIs and SNRIs, is that 
when you start using those drugs, they have a short-term effect of increasing the amount of serotonin that's in the synapse, which is the, their purpose. But it has this, uh, the other side effect, which is to increase the number of transporters that the cells are expressing. Um, and by increasing the, the number of transporters, it's sort of accelerating the rate at which serotonin can be pulled out of uh, out of the synapse. So it's one of the reasons why they say you can't just go cold turkey on serotonin reuptake inhibitors, because if you do, then you're going to really deplete the, the synapse. And, and the reason why is because the cells need that serotonin. So yes, they're releasing some, but if they're having a problem making it, they're going to be more thirsty to bring it back in. So I guess the question I have is, um, do you believe that supplementation of 5-HT or tryptophan, et cetera, you know, how far upstream do you have to go before you might actually be triggering the opposite goal, the opposite thing that you want? Because at the end of the day, what you really want to do is get the cell to produce the right amount of serotonin. You want them to be, be functioning in that homeostatic range as opposed to a dysfunctional space. And sometimes when you supplement, you can temporarily provide what you need, but in the long term, you're actually making it more dysregulated. I, I, I always think of the story, I have a family member who's in the spine field, and he says he always sort of jokes sardonically that, that if he, he never really knows whether or not he needs to do that first spine fusion but he knows he's going to have to do the second one. Mm. So, you know, we don't know whether or not you have to give the SSRI, but we know that once you're on it, you can't come off it and you might need to cycle through other ones. So I guess where upstream do you feel most comfortable with? Is it the precursors? Well, it's a little tricky because part of it, even with uh, like SSRIs as a good example, the literature shows that SSRIs seem to have a bit of an anti-neuroinflammatory effect and seem to promote you know, neuroplasticity and, and something that really interests me about like pharmaceutical science and the pharmacokinetics is like, okay, maybe the mechanism that the drug is really acting upon, working upon is, you know, blocking the reuptake of serotonin. But then what's the physiological effect, you know, because like the SSRI seem to activate tyrosine kinase B and, and get the transcription and production of BDNF going and seem to have this sort of anti-neuroinflammatory effect to some extent, which is why like the SSRIs get used a lot for, you know, chronic pain and, and chronic fatigue and, and stuff like that as well. In neurotrans like neurotransmitters were like my first love scientifically. Like it, it was like the first thing I'm like, this stuff is so cool. And the deeper and deeper I get into it, the more nuanced it really gets. Cause then you start looking at, like I was just having a conversation with some practitioners earlier about the clinical validity or perhaps lack thereof, like urinary neurotransmitter testing. What do we do with that tool? And is it really reflective of what's going on in the CNS? Because you start looking at some of those components of like receptor quantity and expression, saturation. You see the same thing with like uh, testosterone replacement therapy, for example. You get guys on, you know, 100, 200 milligrams testosterone a week. And as you're saturating those androgen receptors at the nuclear level, then, you know, they're kind of becoming unresponsive. So you got to give them that next hit, that next hit. But to your point, like if somebody is, you know, already on an SSRI, 
the analogy, and it's probably grossly simplistic for the level of nuance that we're talking about, but it's like if you're trying to make orange juice, you can squeeze an orange as much as you want. But if there's no more juice in that orange, you're not going to get more out of it. So it's like you can keep blocking the reuptake of serotonin, but at some point, like you do need those cells producing the serotonin to begin with, which is where those precursors come in. And then you start sprinkling in like the nuance of the psychobiome and, and all of that. It gets really convoluted really quick. Yeah. And the, and the question is, if you're, produ- if you're providing the precursors, but you haven't, you haven't changed the way the cell is using the tryptophan, yeah. are you actually accelerating the amount of quinolinic acid, canurinine, and the rest of the pathway? And at the, and again, it's so funny because the end of that pathway, quinolinic acid is sort of the penultimate uh, you know, uh, product of that synthetic pathway. It's actually NAD. And so the NAD is obviously so much so important for the mitochondria and the whole electron transport chain and oxidative phosphorylation. So, you know, you've got melatonin and you've got NAD and you've got, you know, what what is it what's happening here when, as you as you said, you give uh, an SSRI. Yeah. Okay. The pharmaceutical companies will tell you that that's blocking the reuptake of serotonin. It's leaving serotonin in this in the synapse and you feel better. Okay. But why is it having an effect on chronic fatigue when we use those drugs? Is it because you're actually enabling that reuptake of the serotonin or the, you're, you're enabling the serotonin to be utilized to make melatonin. And as a result, you're leaving, you're, you're supporting the mitochondria. And because, you know, is chronic fatigue at, at, at some level, really a metabolic disease? not a central nervous system. It's, a, it's actually a metabolic disease. So I, you know, I agree with you. I think that, that it's, it's far more nuanced than, than, uh, than I think we're, we're ready to answer, but we're starting to, we're using the right tools to figure it out. I never give tryptophan for the record. Like, uh, to you, you're kind of alluding to that there of like, I never do the tryptophan, especially if they have any of the, excess neuroinflammation indices or anything or the higher quinolinic acid because in my mind i'm like i don't want to feed that pathway more whereas you know 5-htp one enzymatic enzymatic reaction forward you can't go into that pathway but you know i think you and i are looking at a lot of the same research because like even with that ido one kynurinic quinolinic pathway with nad as the ultimate end product I have yet to find any research that really teases that out of like, we don't know yet, scientists don't know yet how that pathway is really regulated. We do see plenty of research that's like, hey, you know, PTSD, neuroinflammation, neurodegeneration, you know, all depression, a lot of these kind of neuroinflammation-based conditions, you know, we, we constantly see the elevated kynurinic and quinolinic. But what even the research is not clear on is like, but how is that regulated of like, when does the kynurinic get converted to quinolinic? And when does that get converted to NAD, which you would think is a good thing? So, you know, there's a lot of unknowns there. And this is where, you know, I always am like, the body is so much wiser than we are, you know, forged through eons of evolution and science. We're always just trying to catch up with what has already existed. So, to me, this, this is why I love holistic functional approaches because like these complex mechanisms that we don't fully understand these pathways in the regulation, 
But what we do know is if we change, you know, the environment, the input signals, we can restore homeostasis more effectively. And the, the drug research does a good job of showing us that because they're isolating mechanisms and doing robust clinical trials that demonstrate the physiological effect of working at the mechanistic level. But then a, a big part of my career is, well, let's take that understanding and then apply it holistically. I love that. I'd, I'd love to kind of step back into that holistic functional world a little bit. You alluded to something earlier, and I, I very much appreciate it, where, where in the functional world, we tend to get hyper-focused on the root causes. We become hyper-focused on the environmental pollution or the, the gluten that's the main driver. Or, you know, we've, we've got so many of those root causes on that tree image that we love to show. And we've got all these conditions that have been labeled on the ICD-11 now, we have like 10,000 different conditions that are all listed there. And that common pathway that you alluded to is really what we need to do is have resolution of inflammation as a real possibility. We need to drive resolution to the inflammation so that the signals to those microglial cells in the particular cases we're talking about are able to get there and regulate macrophage activity or microglial activity to allow it to go back to a regulatory uh, mechanism. So let's let's talk a little bit about some of those clinical kind of cases that you tend to start to notice. Okay, we've got these root causes. What are the what are the main drivers of that control of inflammation that you start to work on with your clients? Because you want to create that opportunity for the work that you then do in the resolution of those root causes to actually be maintainable. So what are some of the things you do to help to control the inflammatory process in the first place? Generally, what I've found, and you know what's funny about our industry is like obviously we love exploring root causes. We love running lab testing. We love nerding out on some of this stuff. And we love to try to be bioindividualized. But at the same time, you know, the population that we're working with are more in common than not. And so we are going to be probably doing a lot of the same work with this, you know, people over and over and over. So, you know, with sort of bioindividuality noted, uh, I definitely keep finding my top three priorities from more of like a mechanistic perspective. It's nutrient status, blood flow and oxygenation, lymphatic flow, and microbiome support in general, those usually become my top three priorities of like, if I can restore, you know, the microbiota and all the health implications of that, if I can optimize nitric oxide status for the sake of literally everything that that does, which is conversation unto itself. And then just the essential nutrient status, for example, let me give like a real life. This just happened this week where literally I had, you know, these parents you know, reach out a referral from another practitioner, right? And it's like this 15-year-old girl who, okay, so she had COVID and strep throat about a year ago. Nothing has ever been the same since and is having all these, you know, brain fog, apathy, but even more scary neurological symptoms like rigidity or even like catatonia or kind of passing out sort of things. So they came to me really like, brain on fire, neuroinflammation, stealth infections, long haul syndrome. Oh my gosh, you know, all of that. And I kid you not, like I did the most extensive, you know, panel I think I've ever done with 
all of the fancy inflammatory infection markers, you know, the procalcitonin, the galactin-3, the neoterin, the, all of it, you name it, it was on that panel, C4A, CD57, all of it. Not a lick of that. The immunological inflammatory markers, not any of them were really out of range in the slightest. But the things that stood out the most out of this like $2,000 lab testing, hypoglycemia, uh, questionable hypoxia and like subclinical anemia, you know, dyslipidemia, like very, very basic metabolic perturbations, right? And so my challenge to the parents was like, look, because they've already been through neurologists, rheumatologists, immunologists, infectious disease, cardiologists, and all of them scratching their heads going, autonomic dysfunction, which, you know, that's right up your, your alley with vagal stuff, yep. right? And so my challenge to the parents, I'm like, I think nutrition is a big focal point here. I want you guys to see as, you know, get a CGM, get an HRV. Are her episodes with her passing out and having these weird neurological things, does it correspond with blood sugar dips, blood sugar crashes, blood flow, right? So part of what I'm getting at is, you know, are there some people that they do have major inflammatory issues? Yes. And it's easy to measure with the right biomarkers. But what I keep seeing over and over is people are really psyched out. You know, there's a lot of psychosomatic, there's a lot of, you know, nervous system dysregulation, autonomic dysfunction, but basic metabolic issues that are then driving a lot of these things. And people are so quick to like, well, what's the scary root cause and what's the silver bullet? And it's like, actually, I just need you eating more protein and stabilizing your blood sugar and getting your red blood cell and hemoglobin up. And then if you're still having issues, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit more. So it's that, that really um, ties into some work that we've talked about on the podcast in the past that I did, gosh, probably eight, eight, nine years ago when we went over to the UK and we were looking to find people who had a series of different um, medical problems that all seemed to run together. Um, it involved headache because we were focused a lot on, on, on migraine and headache conditions, but it involved depression and anxiety, widespread pain, um, even things like asthma and, and sinusitis, um, sleep disorders, et cetera. And what we found was all those sort of conditions that run together are associated with that underlying autonomic nervous system dysfunction. And when you actually spoke to those patients, it's a lot, I, I, it sort of resonated when you talked about this 15-year-old who had sort of simultaneously or back-to-back -back COVID and, uh, and an, a bacterial infection. What you saw was that patients oftentimes talked about the fact that they, there was some event in their lives whether it was a surgery, an accident, e even a psychological trauma, like you know losing their mother or losing a sibling or something like that, that triggered them and that they've never been right since and that they've had these symptoms. And I actually find it interesting because you know, I, I, I talk about the fact that if a patient shows up at a doctor's office today and says, listen, I've got, uh, my stomach is a mess, my head hurts, I'm having sleep problems. I'm feeling kind of down. My nose is running. I'm having breathing difficulties. First thing the doctor is going to want to do is find a root cause that is, you know, uh, culturing them for a virus or a bacterial infection and treating them with an antibiotic or something like that. But the moment that patient says, no, I've been having these symptoms consistently for five years, 
Unfortunately, Western medicine just sort of throws up their hands and actually runs out of the room screaming, saying, not another one of these patients. And we're living with 10 to 12% of the population having these problems. And what literally eight years of research has told me is that there's a program that runs in your brainstem, which I refer to simply as the sick program. And basically your brainstem is, is taking in billions of bits of information a day and having to process them the same way your optic nerve brings information in and has to process it for your visual field. It's telling you how you should feel. And there's a lot of preconceived bias that goes into that. And if you've spent a long time being sick, your brain begins to feel as if, or begins to function as if being sick and having these symptoms are what it's supposed to do. And there's a reason why that, that respiratory bug or that digestive bug, they all have the same symptoms because the symptoms are designed for you to change your behavior so that you'll lie down, you'll stop eating, you'll sleep through the day. All of those things that you do when you're sick, it's being driven by the symptoms that you're experiencing. And we can get stuck in that mode. Our brains can actually get stuck. We do that with animal models. We, we get them stuck in that mode so that they'll experience long-term pain co conditions that we can then study medications or treatments on. So I think that, that, that patients like that 15-year-old are experiencing that, that program being switched on and they can't switch it off. And that's why you know, we're focused on how the autonomic nervous system can use neuroplasticity you know, change how the microglia are functioning so that you can unwind that, that sympathetic overdrive that they're stuck in so that they can experience sort of a resolution of all of those symptoms. So, you know, maybe bringing this around to the autonomic nervous system, how do you incorporate uh, modulation of the autonomic nervous system into what you do? I mean, obviously, meditation and deep breathing and things like that are, are really great tools, but what else do you do? Yeah, I'll speak to that. And then I want to ping it to Navaz because like while you were saying that, it had me thinking of, you know, the majority of the, the rat models that they use for like PTSD specifically. Mm -hmm. I find this to be, you know, such a fascinating area of research within kind of mental health, neuropsychiatric, the, the PTSD research that's coming out is so cool, right? Because to your point in, in, this is why, um, like, we're having a very technical conversation around neuroinflammation, neuroplasticity, which are the two subjects I, my whole business is built around. And then, you know, how I speak to neuroinflammation, neuroplasticity to the public is in a more conceptual way, but it's still rooted in concrete, you know, mechanistic stuff. Because that's why I think neuroplasticity as a concept is so empowering because people don't feel like, there's something wrong with me and I'm going to be stuck this way forever. It's like, wait, you're telling me that I have the ability, I have the power to change the way my neural networks are literally wiring and firing, right? Like that's very attractive in general. And when I look at some of the uh, trauma research where it's like, okay, they've got all these great established models for trauma and PTSD with rats of, you know, the tail suspension test, let's dangle the rats by their tails until they're traumatized and their glial cells are activated. Let's, you know, inject them with LPS to activate the, the microglia. Let's uh, do the forced swim test. They feel like they're drowning or the, you know, clamp their little mouse paws and electrocute the mouse paws until they're trauma. Like 
these are all established models, right? Literal torture. Yeah, literally torture. It sucks. They all channel through the same mechanism, whether you're doing it chemically, physically, electrically, just keeping them awake for too long. All of those channels bring it back through this threat response mode that the autonomic nervous system has. It views all of those threats and says, what do I do when I'm threatened? I entered that sympathetic overdrive. How do I get out of that? If you stay there too long, you're stuck. Exactly. And, and you know, regardless of how they induce, you know, the trauma and the stress response, the sympathetic response, the glial neuroinflammatory response, you know, some of the therapeutics that they are looking at with some of that PTSD, like rat research, like even vitamin D, for example, of like, okay, we, we traumatize the rats, get those microglial cells, you know, inflamed and everything, if you will, and do like high dose vitamin D. And that has sort of this modulating inhibitory effect on the neuroinflammation or monoclonal antibodies, or, you know, a big one that they're looking at a lot is minocycline, you know, tetracycline antibiotic crosses blood brain barrier inhibits, AKA shifts microglial phenotype. And then what's cool, because right, they traumatize the rats and then see how do the rats socialize? How do they navigate mazes, stuff like that? And so to your point, what's really cool is even if all they do, traumatize the rats, okay, now they're avoidant, they're anxious, they're depressive, they can't navigate mazes, stuff like that. So we know that they have these PTSD symptoms now, and we know that their glial cells are activated, all these things. And then they'll just give something like minocycline to mechanistically treat the neuroinflammation. And now some of those anxiety behaviors and you know, uh, symptoms kind of go away just because they switched the glial activation and the, the phenotype they're using an inhibitory agent. But that's where I think there's the fun part of the conversation of all the many things we can do to, to cause that shift and something, and then I'll ping it to you, Navaz, because something I preach a lot, you can't talk your way out of neuroinflammation. You can do all the therapy that you want, but like if, if you really are in this dysregulated excess sympathetic tone, excess neuroinflammation, this heightened state, this cell danger response, you, you can't talk your way out of that. You can't reason or rationalize or logic. So Navaz, I'm, I'm curious too, because this ties in perfectly with modulating the vagal pathways and the cholinergic pathways. Yeah. That's exactly right. The, the main driver that we have internally, and I love that you kind of brought up all of the things that we can do through research and through supplementation, through dietary, through talk therapy, they're, they're all wonderful, but they can only work when the microglia are modulated into a state where they're in a regulatory neuroplastic functioning state. And the main driver that we have as an internal mechanism present on every single one of those microglial cells is that alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. That is the driver of that shift that our bodies have created internally. So there's nothing better than providing the right amount of acetylcholine via vagus nerve stimulation via, uh, in, in the brain specifically, nucleus bacillus of Maynard being activated through vagus nerve pathways turning on, right? We need to be able to shift our state to parasympathetic, to rest, digest, and recover and that's where we can then have the internal modulating effect. And that's where the talk therapy will work better. That's where 
specific supplementation will have a more beneficial effect. We have to create that state shift first. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have in how we talk about inflammation is that we've almost made inflammation into a diagnosis. When in reality, it's not. It's entirely a process. And it's a process that is, is adaptive to what's happening around. And what, what's often lost is that the control of the inflammation piece is the missing piece to this whole puzzle. I think that, that one switch, if it's flipped effectively, will allow for all of the other pieces to that process to start to work more effectively, more, more optimally. And that's where we can have recovery and health optimization and longevity and all of these fun pieces occur. But it all truly begins with being able to control the inflammatory process. There's this, I'm going to go to a, a fun analogy here just because it's my favorite movie, uh, The Matrix. If you remember the conversation that Neo had with one of the elders, I believe it was in the second movie, he said, what's the difference between the machines that are using us in the Matrix and the machines that we're using to help the, the city of Zion work? And the answer was control. We have control over the machines that we're utilizing in the city to ensure that people can live and they have control over us. We don't have control over them when they're utilizing us as batteries and in the whole kind of idea of the matrix. The key is control. The key is, do we have the ability to create that modulation internally and are there mechanisms and tools that we can provide? And so this is where we come into vagus nerve activation exercises, vagus nerve stimulation potentially as a wonderful tool to be able to enable that. It's, it's really, it comes down to that control piece for me and that control mechanism. Are we able to shift that dimmer switch from being hyper on in that sympathetic state, bring it down slowly, bring it down slowly and get to a point where we can actively go into sympathetic when necessary because it's not a bad thing and actively be able to bring it back down to parasympathetic when that's necessary and be able to control how we use for lack of a better word accelerator and brakes right it it comes down to that yeah and i i just to riff off what you're saying there for one second you know you you mentioned the alpha 7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor which is what we talk a lot about, about the fact that when you activate the vagus nerve, you're causing the release of acetylcholine, both centrally and peripherally. And that leads to a state change in the immune system. So you are regulating inflammation. But to your point, that same receptor is also located on the, the mitochondria, um, which was sort of a, a big aha moment. Uh, the, the, you know, this is now almost 10 years old but I don't think widely appreciated because the excitement around vagus nerve stimulation is mostly around the control of the immune system. But remember that third leg of the stool, which you know you brought up right at the very beginning, which is metabolism and controlling how the mitochondria function. I'm not necessarily adhering to the mitochondrial theory of aging or, or disease. You know, There's people out there who are advocating that, that even cancer is just a metabolic condition. They might not be wrong, but there's probably more to it than that. But at the end of the day, you want to control both inflammation and metabolism. And it's just fascinating to me that Mother Nature put that same acetylcholine receptor, that same alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor on both the immune cells 
which we know that, that vagus nerve stimulation can regulate, and on mitochondria. And that mitochondria are, it's, a, it's, it's amazing the benefits of acetylcholine on mitochondrial function. So the, the three legs of that stool are all working together to support health. As you said, it doesn't cure anything, but it creates the, the environment in you so that you can heal. Because you can't simultaneously be in an inflamed state, in an energy deficit state, and in uh, uh, you know, a sympathetically activated state and, simul and, and heal. You can't do that. You have to have all three of those systems in the right state, and then you can heal. I feel like you guys are definitely the right people to say this to because, you know, I definitely was super into the neuroinflammatory thing uh, for for years, and and it's still you know the huge focal point. But obviously, you know, we have to be careful about not being biased as clinicians, practitioners, researchers, because we don't want to get excessively myopic on like this is the end all be all thing, and so something that I've been observing in, in a lot of it through the research I'm doing with, you know, my mental map panel and just observing so many of these biomarkers. And then, you know, like how nervous system regulation, which my, my friend, Nicole Para like really popular popularized that sort of terminology. Like I kind of miss the days when we called it allostatic dysfunction or HPA, you know, but nervous system regulation, that's become, you know, the trendy phrase, but I will say and obviously, like, how do you, I'm big on specificity of like, how do we qualify things, right? If we're going to tell somebody they have inflammation or they have neuroinflammation, how do we objectively, you know, qualify that, right? And obviously commercially available, like lab testing and gadgets, kind of, that's the best we have unless we can put them in a research lab. But the point I want to make is something I'm starting to appreciate more and more is we can have massive autonomic dysregulation but not really have measurable inflammation or even neuroinflammation. And so when I think of like the three legs of, of sort of the mental health stool, you know, or maybe four, I don't know, five, who knows, but like the neuroinflammatory piece, the neurotrophic piece, but the neuroendocrine piece, right? And, and what I feel like I'm starting to practice, preach and appreciate more and more is you know, the, the neuroendocrine dysregulation, the upregulated sympathetic tone, the uh, immune cell priming that comes from those stress hormones and the cortisol and the glucocorticoids, it seems like the neuroendocrine almost kind of comes before the like chronic neuroinflammation. It's like you almost have to be in this autonomic dysregulation that then feeds into a heightened oxidative inflammatory response. So I'm curious your guys' perspective on that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and one of the things that I really started to focus, you know, when I talk to people is around the fact that short periods of sympathetic activation are not bad. They're actually quite good. They're quite healthy. It's almost like a, a hormesis effect. You know, you're getting that hormetic uh, challenge to the system that allows you to then slip back into what I call parasympathetic recovery mode that allows you to heal and heal stronger. It's, it's like going out and running. I, you know, I like to run. I'm a, I'm a long distance runner, but I know that if I just went out and started running and ran for 24 hours, I'd be broken. What you need to do is go out and run for an hour and come back. And the next day you can run for an hour and 10 minutes. And the next day you can run for an hour and 20 minutes. 
but you have to get back into that recovery state. So um, I, I think you're right that short periods are okay. It's all about recovery. And, and the question I have is, how long does that parasympathetic recovery have to be activated in order to provide you with a reset? And, I, and my suspicion is it's not very long. I think that you can get that in five or 10 minutes of true relaxation. Now, the question is, can you really get yourself in there that quickly? That's where vagus nerve stimulation comes in because it can trigger you into that parasympathetic recovery mode almost instantaneously and keep you there for an extended period of time. But if you need to move back into the sympathetic state, you know, for whether it's to, you know, to avoid getting eaten by a lion, you can do it. But it, it, it helps you move very quickly into that state so that you can shorten the period of time that you need to be in that recovery mode and still get the benefits. I think what I would even add to that is this concept of the accelerator and brakes kind of works for this because a car is only effective when it has both, right? If the accelerator and the motor are not working on this car, then pushing the accelerator, it's not going to go anywhere. It's a hunk of junk sitting in the garage where a car without effective brakes is actually dangerous, right? It becomes a danger to society, to those around, to the pedestrians, to the other cars. And that's the sympathetic side of things, right? When the accelerator is on, we need to be able to slow it down and control of that accelerator function is, is great. The accelerator is necessary. It's the way we get places, but the brakes are necessary in the recovery piece. And I agree. I, there's a, a concept called active recovery at the end of a workout, for example, right? And I've been weight training now for about a year and a half, nowhere near Brendan, but uh, doing something. And, and what I'm finding is as your heart rate is elevated and you're working out and you're in this sympathetic state, you require a very short amount of time if you've trained it effectively. And this is, this is a key component to individuality. If this person is, has done this many times and has gone into that sympathetic state, coming back to parasympathetic becomes much more easy. And it's something that can be trained. It's something that can be taught. It is part of this neuroplastic network of here's what I need to do when I feel like I'm hyperactivated. And so you go and you sit or you lie down and you do a little bit of deep breathing, focus on diaphragmatic, focus on nasal, slow everything down, listen to slow music. This concept, Andy Galpin actually did a really good uh, set of these on the Huberman Lab stuff on how do we initiate that recovery process. And one of the markers that helps to identify this is how quickly does your heart rate come down, that heart rate recovery uh, concept. And I talk a lot about it in uh, the new book. So how quickly you are able to shift that state and teach yourself to shift that state literally comes down to your resilience and your ability to go sympathetic to parasympathetic as quickly as possible. And those Unfortunately, those who tend to deal with more chronic health conditions lack that resilience to be able to shift from sympathetic to parasympathetic effectively. And so that's the, the whole process of what I do with people is I teach them how to come back to parasympathetic, teach them how to create that active recovery, and not just with exercise, but with all the other things that can trigger a sympathetic activity or a sympathetic signal going out to their cells. It's cool to kind of this conversation's really becoming well-rounded and, and coming full circle because hearing you talking about 
like weightlifting, exercise recovery, heart rate recovery. And JP mentioned being an endurance athlete. Like just this morning, you know, I, I posted on Instagram about volume of oxygen, VO2, right? One of my credentials is uh, I'm a metabolic technician. And, and back in my fitness career, that was my, one of my favorite things. Like I loved the metabolic testing and the lab testing, right? Where, you know, we see very clearly like a, a low volume of oxygen, the maximum amount of oxygen that your body can use under exercise stress, you know, a low VO2 as a marker of cardiovascular, cardiometabolic, you know, fitness associated with all-cause mortality, neurodegeneration, heart disease, depression, you know, you, you name it. The ability to, uh, because we, like we were talking so much about autonomic regulation and mitochondrial function and inflammation, the ability to increase your body's capacity to oxygenate itself. You know, it's arguably the most fundamental aspect of health. And JP, to your point, you know, not all sympathetic stressors are bad, right? Exercise is the perfect analogy. You know, you go in the weight room and you're causing micro tears to your sarcomeres and everything, and then you give it the rest of recovery to rebuild back up. And for me, like, you know, um, my first love in life was martial arts. You know, I started karate as a, as a young kid. And so obviously the proprioception and the athleticism and the fitness component, but the mindfulness and the control of breath, you know, you're sparring, and then trying to control your breathing through rounds, you know, that deep diaphragmatic breathing and everything. So something, you know, this is my fitness bias and stuff, but looking, when I see so much content on social media, how do you regulate the nervous system? It's like, maybe move your body, maybe exercise, maybe to your guys's point, you know, resilience is, is earned. A high VO2 score is earned. Metabolic flexibility is earned. And, you know, you do that by pushing into that stressful, sympathetic place and, and then obviously the, the backing off in the recovery. And so whether it's heart rate variability, uh, you know, vagus nerve exercises, uh, VO2 measurements and RMR, you know, we have a lot of cool data points that we can capture to then illustrate how efficaciously is our, you know, our workout regimen or our lifestyle regimen and everything. So it's, it's cool seeing all these elements that we're talking about kind of converging together here. Yeah, and, and, and I, you know, I just want to just, again, put a plug in for the, uh, um, the metabolic measurements as well. You've got um, things like insulin resistance measurements and uh, glucose intolerance measurements. And I was just, you know, just reading some articles that talk about, you know, even at the age of 20 years old in, in people with BMIs that have never been over 22 or 23, simply being sedentary is enough to turn you into an insulin resistant individual. Um, you're, you're not, you're not going to evidence that with HbA1c levels that are high. You're not going to, you know, have circulating levels of, of glucose that are high, but you're still going to have a level of insulin resistance that is frankly not healthy. Um, so it's really, really important to, to get out and be active. And, you know, one of the things that's that I become personally recently very fascinated with is the role of nutrient sensing versus sort of that that intermittent fasting triggered autophagy that you get inside the cell. That um, that activation of mTOR by nutrients sort of triggers growth, 
And if you are, if you go through a fasting period, then the cells that are now starved for nutrients have to recycle. And I, I think of it as like spring cleaning slash recycling that takes place in the cell and it clears things out. It activates, you know, a, a rejuvenation, if you will, of cellular function and metabolic function. One of the, the best ways to activate that, that process is through activating uh, AMP kinase, which is what you trigger when you exercise. And, you know, especially that endurance exercise, which I, I really like, but, you know, endurance exercise is triggering that level of sort of more efficient oxidative phosphorylation, better mitochondrial function, healthier metabolism, in part because it's triggering that, uh, that autophagy that's clearing out the garbage from your cells. And the one last piece I'll say is that I've always been of, of the understanding, you know, from way back that, that cells like your muscle cells and your fat cells require insulin in order to take up glucose, that your, your central nervous system and your immune system don't. They have alternative mechanisms for taking up glucose. But it turns out that endurance exercise and the triggering of AMP kinase triggers even in muscle cells and fat cells the ability to take up glucose in a in an insulin independent way and so you know even if you got, have a little bit of that insulin resistance you get to that point and i from my own personal experience when you start running you get out there and you start running and you haven't been doing it for months or even years and and maybe it's even the first time you get out there it's really hard it's really hard and if you just sort of keep at it, keep at it, keep at it, walk if you have to, you get to the point where, you know, all of a sudden, and it may take you a year to get there at my age, I'm 55, you know, it takes a long time, but you get to that point where you suddenly feel as if you could run forever. And that's that feeling where it doesn't hurt anymore. Now it's just fun. It's not, it's just, it just feels really good. And where you are metabolically is at that point where you no longer need the insulin. You can run without the insulin because your metabolism is now capable of providing the energy that you need through that AMP kinase pathway, through the ability to take up what it needs without, without insulin. It's like metabolic flow state. Yeah, exactly. I love that term. I <laughs> love that term. Yeah, I was going to say that metabolic metabolic flexibility. You know, it's 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 earned. I I, I like fitness because it's kind of the great equalizer. It's like you get out of it, mm -hmm. what you put into it, and there's no substitute. You know, we can give all the supplements and, and biohacks and stuff, but but yeah, I think the I, I love the AMP kinase and, and mTOR autophagy. And one of the things recently I was posting about, you'll you guys will appreciate it of. You know, typically when we think of like fasting or caloric restriction, it's like, okay, well, it increases autophagy. But actually, like in the brain, uh, I think it's the hypothalamus. Don't quote me on that. But in different regions of the brain, fasting will actually inhibit autophagy in those brain regions, but upregulate neuroplasticity. And it's cool because like scientists are sort of theorizing of like, well, why would this make sense from like an evolutionary perspective? It's like, well, you know, if you're like a fasting caveman and AKA you're in an energy scarce environment, you might starve to death. Like you need that neuroplasticity to adapt, to overcome, to um, sort of, you know, think your way out of, out of the situation. You have to have that sort of plasticity and malleability with, with your neural networks, figure out like, 
well, where, where's my next meal going to come from so I don't starve to death? So, you know, a lot of times when I'm talking about neuroplasticity and neuroinflammation, I'm a big psychedelic advocate, but like because of how they work, but, you know, exercise. Like I, I was lecturing at like IMMH a few years ago, uh, hundreds of psychiatrists in, in the audience and stuff. And when I was preaching about like exercise, sunlight being like major stimulators of neuroplasticity, neurotrophic signaling, they were all just like baffled and everything. And I'm like, well, guys, <laughs> you know, low hanging fruit. Cause even your, your muscle cells, like brain drive neurotrophic factor, it got its name because they thought it was brain drived. And then now they realize, oh, actually, when you move your body and you, you work your skeletal muscle, it produces metabokine or brain drive neurotrophic factor. And they're looking at using you know, exogenous injected BDNF as treatment for type 1 diabetes because it regenerates the beta cells of the pancreas. It inhibits gluconeogenesis and glucose excursion, right? So there's so many cool things that, that come back to, you know, thinking of your muscles as a healing organ system that has to be stimulated, that has to be worked. Yeah, I think muscle's been heavily overlooked for way too long and we're, we're finally in a situation where we have wonderful books and amazing people like you to uh, bring these concepts to the masses and say, listen, like humans were built to move. We were built to move and when we move, we function better every part of us. It's not, we don't build muscle for muscle. Yes, it looks good, but we build muscle so that our entire body functions better. Muscle is absolutely a healing organ. I love that you put it that way. And I, I don't think like, I, I'm glad we're at the point where people are finally being able to hear this as this is the real science. And it's, if we could put exercise in a pill and sell it, it would be the most effective supplement of all time. So it, it's, this is like the perfect time to quote one of my favorite quotes of all time, which is Soren Kierkegaard, uh, his comment about walking. It says, he said, above all, do not lose your desire to walk. Every day I walk myself into a state of well-being and walk away from every illness. I love it. I have walked myself into my best thoughts and I know of no thought so burdensome that one cannot walk away from it. You know, and, and it goes on to talk about the fact that if you stop walking, that's the fastest way to start feeling sick. So they, you know, I, I read an article that talked about the fact that, that uh, being sedentary, sitting was the new smoking. And I, I, I think that's exactly right. We have the ability to, to teach our brains and teach our bodies that we're healthy simply by getting up and moving. I like that quote. I, I, don't, I don't know that one. I know, uh, I think it was Hippocrates that said walking is man's best medicine or something to that effect. But I, li I liked that quote a lot. That's yeah, a good one. It's one of my favorites. That's awesome. Well, speaking of sitting for too long, <laughs> uh, I do want to... Uh, be uh, aware of the time and, and your schedule. And thank you so much for joining us today. For anybody who is uh, still with us on, on the podcast here, uh, we will definitely share uh, the link to Brendan's course. If you really want to dig in for 38 and a half more hours, you absolutely can. Uh, we can dig into the microglial stuff and we'll share that with everybody. And so thanks so much for joining us, Brendan. Uh, absolutely a pleasure having you with us. Oh, no. Yeah, thank you both. Like genuinely, I this I live for conversations like this. So this was really a pleasure and we'll have to run it back on my podcast next time. Wonderful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks so much everybody for listening. We'll uh we'll uh 
see you on the next one. And please feel free to share this with one person who you think could benefit from this information. Wish you all upgraded health. Thanks so much. Thank you.